So yeah, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at ECC, and I've said many times that I've got three kids, and my two youngest are nine and six, and I've talked before about the fact that sometimes they're not great sleepers, like sometimes bedtime is hard, sometimes there's things that are scary or whatever, and they end up in bed with mom and dad during the night, and we're trying to avoid that. And so one of the things we're trying to do is really be careful about what things we watch uh, the movies that we re- watch, the, the, the TV shows, the things. And so a couple of weeks ago, when my kids came to me and said, hey, can we watch this new show called Zombies? I'm like, no, you, you may absolutely not watch that show. I don't even know what that is. But they said, oh, but it's a kid's show. It's Disney. So I did a little, little research. And here's what Wikipedia has for a series summary for this kid's show. 50 years ago, in the planned community, I'm going to use a movie voice, if that's okay. All right. <laughs> In the planned community of Seabrook, an accident at the Seabrook power plant resulted in an explosion, which caused half the population of Seabrook to turn into brain-eating zombies. Those who weren't affected constructed a wall to quarantine the zombies in a territory called Zombie Town from the rest of Seabrook. The government later created bracelets for zombies called Z-bands that deliver soothing electromagnetic pulses to keep the zombies from craving brains. Kid show. <laughs> and it's a musical. It's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like, you know, uh, high school musical meets Night of the Living Dead. It's great. And it's Disney. And so I watched an episode or two and just to make sure it was okay for the kids. And uh, basically, the message of this show is that you've got these zombies and you've got these normals, and they're trying to, you know, everyone's kind of prejudiced against the other group. But it's a show that's really kind of about tolerance. And you've got these zombie kids who want to be on the football team, and you've got these normal kids who want to date the zombie kids. And, and it's about the parents and the prejudices that they bring to those conversations and the efforts that they go to keep their kids apart. And it's interesting to me that, that our kids hear all these messages from from secular sources about inclusion and about acceptance and and about tolerating one another and having tolerance. And at the same time, many of our kids and, frankly, many of our adults see the church as not really sharing any of those values. And, in fact, they see the church in America largely as a place that's intolerant, uh, that that isn't accepting, that's self-righteous, that that doesn't really have, doesn't welcome those who are from the outside in. And frankly, just sort of irrelevant. Like, what good does the church do anyway besides being all of those negative things? And so we as a church have said, you know, let's let's go back. Let's look at what the Bible said. Let's look at the very earliest church that we see in the book of Acts and see where is it that perhaps we need to be realigned. Not not to to change the core message, but to say, what, what did the original church look like? What was prescribed for that original church? And so we've been walking through this, this series called Losing My Religion, walking through the book of Acts, and today we're going to continue in that. So I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we would love to send you home with one. Uh, we've got stacks of them at the doors and in the back corner over there. Uh, basically, this, this book of Acts, it's narrative, it's story, it's action-packed. It's a great read, and if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do it. It's really interesting. There are these you know, thousands of people that are coming to faith, and there's miracles, and there's people that are being healed, and there are people that are being brought back to life from the dead, and there's people that are being persecuted and stoned and imprisoned, and there's this bad guy named Saul who's chasing down all the Christians. And all of it is just compelling, compelling reading. And then here in chapter 10... The author wants to to introduce us to a new character. So chapter 10, starting in verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. 
He was a devout, God-fearing man, as, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. So Luke is introducing us to this new character, and he wants to make sure that the readers know a few things about this character that he's introducing to us. First of all, he's not a Jew. He, he's a Gentile, not just any Gentile, but he's a Roman army officer, kind of the equivalent of a captain today in the army. He's an important man. But secondly, he says that he is a devout man, and his whole household is devout. He's a God-fearing man. And that language, God-fearing man, that would have been very specific language to his Jewish audiences. They had a category, they had a social class for people like Cornelius. They called them God-fearers. And God-fearers were basically devout. They observed, they were monotheistic, they, they worshipped Yahweh, they attended synagogue, uh, they, they observed all the rites and the rituals, or many of the rites and the rituals of the Jewish people, and yet they were not fully Jewish. In fact, they practice many of the, the main requirements of Jewish piety. Luke actually reiterates this by including the details that Cornelius prayed regularly because there were designated times each day where Jews would pause and pray. And it says that he gave uh, generously to the poor. And the language that Luke uses actually implies not just generally to the poor, but he was giving to the Jewish poor. So here's this man, this Roman officer, who at some point, living among the Jews, had turned from the Roman gods... And worshipped Yahweh. And he's doing all of these things trying to live as a good Jewish man. And yet he wasn't. Not in the eyes of the Jews. God-fearer was not the same. And so in the eyes of the Jews, he was still a dirty Gentile. The Jews of the first century saw people through this lens of all their, their religious rituals and requirements. And unless a person actually went through circumcision and a number of other rituals and, and sacrifices in order to be a fully converted Jew, then the Jews still saw them through this lens of religion as ritually unclean, as being on the outside looking in, as being not quite good enough and still contaminated. And so Luke, in these first two verses, is letting us know that Cornelius is this powerful Roman officer and, at the same time, a second-class citizen among the Jews. He was just a God-fearer. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? he asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man there named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. It says it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this is significant because in the, the Jewish tradition, 3 o'clock would have been one of those traditional times where they would pause and pray. So Luke wants us to know he's praying. But remarkably, as he, this, this non-Jew, this only a God-fearer, this outsider is praying... Remarkably, he receives a vision from God. And Cornelius obeys, and he sends men to go summon Peter. Let's continue the story. Meanwhile, it says, The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So again, we have another vision right in the very next part of this verse or this chapter. And it says that it was noon or the sixth hour. And Peter, a devout Jew, a full Jew, a real Jew, is up on the roof 
praying, but it's interesting. According to some of the commentaries I read, noon wouldn't have been a traditional time for a Jewish person to have paused in prayer. And it wouldn't have been a time where they were eating lunch. And so it's curious that Luke includes this detail for both of them. And, and I wonder, and this was not in the commentary, I'm making this up. <laughs> but I wonder if, at least in part, we're seeing this contrast of the non-Jew who was actually observing and was following, and then this other real Jew who wasn't quite getting it right. That's completely speculation on my part, but I think it's worth saying. Let's continue. Um, oh, next page. <laughs> Full disclosure, that's totally speculation. I said that. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Verse 11. Peter saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was led down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times, and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. There's so much interesting and kind of weird in that story. I mean, Peter gets this kind of crazy vision, but not just once. He sees it three times, like once wasn't enough. I'm not a big numerology guy, but there seems to be something with Peter and three things happening in three, right? He denies Jesus three times, and three times Jesus restores him. Three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes, Lord. And Jesus three times says, then feed my sheep. And here we see that same pattern. Three times this vision is given to Peter, and it repeats over and over and over again. What does it mean? I think it's easy for us as modern readers, as modern Christians who don't have any dietary restrictions as part of our religious practices, to read this and, and assume that this would have been good news for Peter. Like, I have been waiting so long for bacon. <laughs> right? And yet, I don't, I don't know if that would have been the case. I mean, Peter had spent his whole life being taught by his religion that these foods were a desecration, that they were gross, that they were you know, contaminated, and they would contaminate him. To even touch them would be to defile himself. So I'm not sure he would have received this as good news. I, I don't know that he would have wanted to eat any of this. For Peter, as a Jewish person, his, his diet was not a matter of preference. It was a matter of his core identity as a Jewish man. But here God speaks directly and says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. It looks like God is contradicting himself. Like God is going and changing the law that he had earlier in Torah said that he would never change. And so Peter's stumped. What's going on? It says Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? When I was a kid, I I often heard this passage quoted as as evidence that we as Christians don't need to observe any sort of dietary system from the Jewish people. And maybe that's true. But if you read this whole chapter, it doesn't really make sense that that would be the takeaway in the context of this chapter. In fact, it's hard to argue to that conclusion even from this text alone. Notice that three times God says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter doesn't. I think we sort of insert that in this story for ourselves. Like Peter's hungry, it's noon, it's lunchtime. God says kill and eat, and so he does. He has a little barbecue on the roof, a little lizard. (laughs) But that's not 
in the text anywhere. In fact, it says three times he said, no, that's unclean. Peter, a Jewish man, gives the pious Jewish answer. After three times, God relents and it says the sheet was then suddenly pulled back to heaven. And then the rest of the story in chapters 10 and 11 isn't about food either. I mean, yes, we see Peter going into a home and eating food, but there's no mention of it being unclean or clean food. And in fact, the rest of Acts characterizes Peter and all of the Jewish believers as remaining faithful to observing Torah and to reserving the food restrictions that they saw there. And so while we might think that this passage is about us being able to eat shellfish and pork, that's not how Peter interpreted it. So how did Peter interpret this vision? Let's, let's keep reading. We'll see if the context helps. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Just then, and I think that's important, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter's up there, he's puzzling, he's stumped, he's perplexed, and right away, just then, the Holy Spirit begins to divine this for him. He says, I have sent these three men, these three Gentile men, go with them without hesitation. This is something that I am doing. I am going to use these three men. And it had to be three men, because this is Peter, and everything happens in three. So Peter went down, he said, I'm the man you're looking for, why have you come? They said, we are sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of his brothers from Joppa. I guess it's worth noting that um, Luke wouldn't have needed to include the detail that Peter invited them to stay for the night. But it would have been customary, and it would have been prohibited for Peter, as a Jewish man, to extend hospitality to Gentiles and to welcome them into his home. But by doing that, he is agreeing, by receiving their hospitality, he is agreeing, in essence, that he will then accept and receive their hospitality, which was expressly prohibited by Jewish law. And probably would have felt incredibly uncomfortable for Peter, a man who had never allowed these things to pass his lips. See, just like the dietary restrictions, this Jewish lens through which Peter saw the world informed his ideas of who was clean and unclean. It wasn't a preference for him any more than it was about his food. This was his identity, his distinction as a Jewish person. His whole life, Peter's religion, had taught him that Gentiles were dirty, that they were dogs, that they were unclean, that they would contaminate you with their ritual impurity. His religion, all of his life had taught him that to never, ever, under any circumstances, enter the home of a Gentile person. So I'm not sure he would have wanted to go. I, I don't think that this news from God would have been like, a, oh good, I get to go to a Gentile's house. This would have been very uncomfortable for him. Let's keep reading. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This is a big deal for Cornelius. On top of his household, which would have included his family, his servants, his slaves, perhaps officers and their families, were all part of his household. And on top of all of that party, he invites friends and relatives to come and to hear this news. 
and things get awkward immediately. <laughs> That's like my parties. After Peter, <laughs> after Peter entered his house, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. It doesn't say it in the text, but it's very possible that uh, right before this, in chapter 9 ends with Peter raising a woman from the dead. And so it's very possible that Cornelius had heard about this Peter, this legend who was going around and doing miracles. But either way, it does say that an angel had come and told him about this guy. And so when he sees him, he falls down on his face and is worshiping him. And it's broken. It's not right. It's, you know, but it's kind of beautiful. I think in it, you see his heart, his eagerness. He wants to learn. He wants to experience God. And he expresses it, not properly, but beautifully. And I think in Peter's response, we see a little bit of what God is doing in Peter's heart as well. He says, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. Yes, Peter is certainly correcting Cornelius and saying, I'm a human. I'm not a God, so you should not worship me. But I think perhaps there's more in that as well. I, I think he's saying, I'm a human being just like you. He's making uh, the, the breakdown of the distinction between them. Even in a small way, he's breaking the distinction of who's a Jew, who's a Gentile, who's a believer, who's just a God-fearer, who's clean and who's unclean. And he simply says, I'm human, just like you. His religious lens had changed, even slightly. And he was seeing things differently. Peter's somehow able to push through the generations of religious animosity and prejudice and history and even military occupation. Perhaps even some of his own like personal revulsion at the idea. And he's able to say, I'm just like you. And then not just say it, he's able to act on it. It says, they, they talked together and went inside where many others, and that means many other Gentiles, were gathered. Let's keep going. Next verse, verse 28. Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. First of all, Peter says, you know it's against our laws for me to enter a Gentile home or to even associate with you. And I think we have to pause there and note that actually... There's, I mean, God had given Israel all kinds of commands about what to eat and what not to eat, and how, what to wear and what not to wear. There's lots of regulations, but nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in Mosaic Law, nowhere in Torah, does God prohibit Israel, Jews, from entering the home of a Gentile or associating with Gentiles. So when Peter says, you know it's against our law, the law he's referring to isn't scripture. It's human-made. It's religious law. It's not anywhere in the Old Testament. Religion had taken God's good law and it added other things to it. God's healthy boundaries and added to it a layer of prejudice and bigotry and hate and distinction that was never meant to be there. And even if they added those for the right reasons, to do whatever they could to maintain purity, the end result was a people that saw others as less than. I think it's also interesting to note that God says, or I'm sorry, that Peter says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. 
He said, God has shown me. But where, where did that happen? I just read all of the verses. I didn't skip anything. And God never said anything about that. He talked about food that Peter thought was unclean. And he said, don't say that it's unclean if I've said it's clean. But he doesn't say anything about people. It says, when, when he said, eat all of this, Peter replied, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice again said, don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. Peter takes what God has said about food and applies it to people. Don't call something, or in this case, someone, unclean if I have said that they are clean, if I have made them clean. That's how Peter interprets this vision from God. And then the Holy Spirit immediately, immediately, and it says that a number of ways, confirms that this is the case. And he says, I've sent these two men, or these three men, so it's three, three men to confirm this. Go. This whole vision about food wasn't primarily about food at all. It wasn't for Peter, at least. It was, it was about relationship. And as we'll see as the chapter unfolds, it's, it's about Cornelius. It's about Cornelius' household. And as we see, this is going to be about a generation of believers that we see reflected in this story. It's about God. It's about God demonstrating his heart for everyone, not just the Jews, but for everyone. And it's about breaking down Peter's prejudice against these people. It's like God was saying, Peter, you don't get to decide who's clean and who's unclean. I made them, and I made them clean. Back to the passage, picking up where we left off. Peter says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent me. It's funny to me that Peter says, tell me why you sent me. If you do the chronology on this, it took them over 24 hours to go from Joppa. They had lots of time on this walk. And I can't imagine that subject never came up. Like, so what are we doing? But he wants Cornelius to tell him. He wants to hear it right from Cornelius. Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius... Your prayer has been heard, and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives by the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good for you to come, good of you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. There's some pressure. <laughs> You might be sitting here going, yes, you've already read that a couple of times. You know, you can just say yada, yada, yada. But Luke includes this detail over and over and over in the story. And part of what Luke is doing is saying, you have to understand God orchestrated this. This was God's doing. This wasn't Peter's idea. This wasn't Cornelius' idea. This was God doing this. And Cornelius is recounting the story, confirms for Peter that God has been orchestrating this unlikely meeting between these two unlikely parties. And it, and it illustrates for Peter that this is not a one-time exception to the rule. This is a whole new understanding of how relationship is supposed to work. It's Peter understanding in a new way that his religion had led him astray. That the prejudice and the hate that he had been taught all of his life wasn't from God. It was from his religion. Let's read. Next verse. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel. 
That there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The good news for the people of Israel is that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Not just of the Jews. Lord of all. The good news for Israel is that they don't have to continue their religious prejudices. They don't have to continue to view people through this lens of Jew and Gentile, dirty and clean. They can begin to see the world the way that God sees the world. And God wants all the world to be restored. And I'm not sure they would have received that as good news. They had had a privileged place in their minds. I know God was making it available to everyone. And so Peter goes on and he tells the story of Jesus, reminding of the parts of the story that they already know and then filling in the details that was maybe new to them. Jesus had been a big deal, so they knew some of these things. Verse 37, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good things and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified, saying that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him, will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even in this story, you can see that it's coming together for Peter. Like, Jesus commissioned us to preach this good news in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And this right now, this meeting, this party that I'm at, this is that. Something amazing happens. Next verse, verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. It says the Jewish believers who had come with him were amazed. And that's a positive statement essentially. But do you hear sort of the underlying prejudice that exists in that sentence? It's, a, it's a subtle, but I don't think I'm reading into it. They said they were amazed that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles too the Gentiles were worthy of the Spirit, that they were worthy of God's love, that they were worthy of being included in God's restoration plan for this world. They were surprised. Maybe they weren't so different after all. Next verse, then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. And so Peter, who would have been reluctant and hesitant and fearful to even step foot for a moment just to step across the threshold of a Gentile's home, is now invited to stay for days. And he begins to teach and to build relationship. And they begin to worship together and pray together and do Christian life together. And, and it's a beautiful thing, I'm sure. And it was an awkward thing, I'm sure. These are two different people from two different cultures who are trying to figure out how to do this together. 
but in significant ways, the prejudices and the biases that had kept Peter from seeing these people as worthy of God's love, of worthy of his friendship, of worthy of the good news that he had been given. Those barriers began to break down. And he began to see them through a new lens as brothers and sisters in Christ who are human just like me. And then the story continues. Chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. And then Peter told them exactly what happened. And Peter goes on and he outlines the whole story. I won't read it, but basically it's, yeah, I was on this roof and I was praying. I got this great vision. And then it's supposed to go this thing. And it was so weird because he told me to eat unclean food. And I was like, no way. And then he's like, so I went and these guys came and there's three Gentiles. And I went with them and they met the, the whole story, right? And I'll let Peter tell it in his own words here. Verse 15, as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Just as. And then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? I love that sentiment. I think Peter's saying in part, I don't totally get this, but Jesus said this was happening, and we thought that this was going to happen just for us. But apparently this is something that's available to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus. And who am I? Who are you to stand in God's way? When the other heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Because Peter stepped out of his comfort zone, because Peter obeyed God and broke through his own prejudices, Cornelius and his household and his close friends and his relatives were saved. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, perhaps just as importantly, Peter and the fellow believers who were with him and the believers back in Jerusalem began to have a new lens, a new way of seeing the world. They began to see past their walls and the religious systems that they had built, walls of pride and prejudice and self-righteousness and privileged status. They were able to stop seeing people through their religious lenses and start seeing people the way that God saw them as loved and cherished and wanted. And it changed the world. I mean, this was sort of the birth of the ministry going outside of Judaism and reaching the Gentile world. But there were barriers that had to be broken down. That's what it looked like 2,000 years ago. What does it look like for us today? Who are our Gentiles? Who are the people that we, even in subtle ways, that we see as less than? Who are the people in our lives that we can't imagine sitting down and having a meal with. Who are the people in your life that when I was talking about this, you went, but he can't mean them. I, I don't know who that is. As I was preparing this week, I was thinking of a list. And, you know, would it, can I imagine sitting down at the table with a murderer or a prisoner or a sexual assaulter? Can I imagine sitting down at the table with a refugee or a slave? Can I imagine sitting down with a prostitute or with a John, 
I started thinking of names of people that I might list. Can I sit down with so-and-so? And then I realized as soon as I start listing names of political figures who have been in the news, you will only hear that. Because we see everything through lenses. And if anything has taught us over the last couple of weeks of this mess, it's that we all have lenses through which we are seeing this news. And it colors the way we see everything. If we say we don't have lenses, we are fooling ourselves. What are the some of the lenses that we see through? What are our walls? What are our prejudices? If scripture teaches us anything, it's that God's people tend to take his good, life-giving boundaries and add all of this other structure to it, all of these other regulations of who's in and who's out and what it looks like to be good and what it looks like to be bad. It's our own modern version of clean and unclean, of determining who's worthy and who's not. But the truth is, if we do this, if we start to break down those, those barriers, if we start to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and then empower us to actually break down these barriers in our minds and in our hearts, the truth is God will bring people in here that are messy. God will bring people in here who don't see the world the way that we see it, who don't believe all the same things that we see, that have broken marriages and broken lives and broken laws. It's going to be hard. And you know what? We won't do it right. We won't do it right. And I think that's okay. One of the beautiful things about the story of Peter, you don't see it in Acts, but you see it later, is that Peter, who God had given directions to, God who literally spoke to him from a cloud three times, messes this up. I want to read to you just a section from Galatians 2. It's a a book later in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul actually publicly chastises Peter because he's going back to all the same old religious garbage that God had freed him from. Let me read this. This This is Paul writing. Galatians 2, starting at verse 9. In fact... James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift that God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep working with the Gentiles. Good, right? While they continued their work with the Jews. Uh Uh-oh. Their only suggestion was that we keep helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. Next verse. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to pose him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some of the friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from those people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. And even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. Religion mixed with fear just toxic (laughs) are we worshiping from a place of fear but i think the good news is that even if if even peter struggled with this if even paul need i mean if even peter needed paul to bust his chops and say like dude god talk to you how do you not get this then i think there's there's room for us to give grace to one another as we don't do this perfectly I think there's room for us to give ourselves grace as we are learning to be a community that is welcoming and open and wants to work with people and and experience God with us. The Church of Acts wasn't perfect. I mean, it was made up of humans just like us, just like me. And as you look at this, you see that there were times that they were broken. There were times that they did this imperfectly. There were times that it was messy. And there were so many times that it was so, so beautiful and it changed the world. And that's the same mission that we have been given. That is the same plan. We are God's plan A for this world. And there isn't a plan B. Will we, like Peter, 
bring this message of good news to the world, a message that Cornelius needed to hear, that his household needed to hear, and that our neighbors and co-workers and classmates need to hear? Or will we allow our biases, our prejudices, our lenses keep us from participating in what God is doing? Or will we, like Peter, say, who are we to stand in God's way? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. You've given us these remarkable examples, these miraculous stories, but also these broken, imperfect people that we can point to uh, as examples and also as foils that we can... You gave us these examples of imperfect people that, that you loved and that you used and that you changed the world in using. God, thank you for your spirit. Pour out your spirit in this place and on us as you did. Use us in the ways that you did. And God, we repent for the ways in which we have built up these systems and all these structures and all these different things that have distracted from the core of who you are and the core of what you're calling us to. God, would you put that conviction in us? We want to be used. We want to bring glory and people to you and be a place where we can say, I'm a human just like you. Accomplish that in us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.